Hey, beautiful humans. It's time to stop sacrificing for everyone else and put you first. Are you feeling tired, stuck, or disconnected? Or maybe you're just looking to be the best version of you. I'm Mary Wong. And I'm Dr. Tanya Wild, and this is Embrace, Embrace you, you First, a podcast to help you thrive and not just survive. We are busy moms, successful entrepreneurs, and doctors in the field of natural medicine with over 40 years combined clinical experience. You're going to learn from our professional expertise and our juicy secrets that have helped thousands of men and women just like you. We are going to teach you practical and doable strategies on health, relationships, and career. So sit back, relax, and get ready to embrace you right now. Today, we're going to talk about the energy that heals us. And I'm so privileged and honored to have my personal friend, colleague, mentor, who is also an author, speaker, educator, and entrepreneur with us today. And thank you for being here, Jill. And before we go on, Tanya's, Dr. Tanya is going to actually introduce you more formally. Yes. So Jill Blakeway is a doctor of acupuncture and Chinese medicine. She is a licensed and board certified acupuncturist and clinical herbalist. She founded Unova in New York City in 1999 and continues to practice there alongside a team of Chinese medicine practitioners. Energy Medicine, the Science and Mystery of Healing is Jill's third book on health and healing. It in it, Jill describes what it means personally and scientifically to be an energy healer and draws on cutting-edge research to explain how acupuncture and energy medicine works. And I love that there's a big research component to energy medicine because uh, my mother kind of raised us with energy medicine and the whole concept, and I was always very skeptical. So what is energy medicine, Jill? Tanya, Mary, I'm really happy to be on your show, you guys. Um, I, it's a question I get a lot. What is energy medicine? And I think we have to start with what is energy because it sounds very woo. And you're right to be skeptical. Yes. You were right to be skeptical when you were a child. And HarperCollins asked me to write a book for skeptical people, not for people who already <laughs> had experienced energy medicine in some ways. But your energy is actually the part of your body that you take for granted. It's your body's intelligence. It's your body's ability to come back into balance. And your body has um, lots of very sophisticated self-calibrating systems and they are what we take for granted so you know if you go out for dinner and you have a couple of glasses and wine too many as long as you don't do it every night your liver just kicks in <laughs> if you get a bug bite you have a histamine reaction your body acts intelligently in a way that brings you back into balance and that is the part of you that isn't skin and tissue and bone and so I always define the energy field as everything that isn't skin and tissue and bone which includes your thoughts and your feelings and your beliefs, which is why they can influence the energy field, but also your body's awareness and intelligence. And energy medicine is all the ways that that intelligence gets prompted so that your body can do what it knows how to do and does all the time, which is self-heal. That's right. Mm -hmm. And we just ignore it. We don't we just don't pay attention to it. And it's there working for us all the time. And so what you know, we can draw upon it just innately, or we can channel it through other means, right? Like, as you mentioned, acupuncture, other healing modalities, and, and, when, and also including food, right? Yes. 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 Any way that you support your body 
so that it can do what it knows how to do. And you're right, we do take it for granted actually until it goes wrong. And I think a lot of chronic disorders are actually disorders of miscommunication. In your body when you're Mm. healthy, Every cell knows where it is and what it is and what it's supposed to be doing. Every organ system communicates with other organ systems in order to synchronize their efforts. And a lot of the chronic disorders we see in our practices as acupuncturists who've exhausted all sorts of Western medicine are really disorders of poor communication within the body. It's either an overreaction like an autoimmune disorder or even cancer, which is a cellular overreaction um, in some ways. or inflammation and or poor digestion because of poor communication between the upper organs of digestion. Um, Headaches are are another one, allergies are an overreaction. And so all of those things respond very well to prompts. And those prompts can be physical, like acupuncture, which is a very sort of electromagnetic prompt. And we can talk about how that works if you like. Um, Hands-on healing, which is a much more um, a prompt of frequency and the passage of information, and I can tell you how that's measured. Um, But it's also placebos, which we always pretend are the enemy, but are actually your body um, responding and changing chemically in response to your thoughts, and therefore very valuable. So there are lots of ways of prompting your body to heal, and all of them come under the slightly nebulous term energy medicine. And I, we want to cover all of that, actually, right? So let's um, segue straight into first uh, about then the acupuncture. So ha- hands-on healing and acupuncture, because they can work synergistically. Well, acupuncture is interesting because I think acupuncturists like you and I, Mary, spent a lot of time integrating ourselves into the Western medical system. I know I did. I worked in hospitals. I did. I published clinical research. I very much wanted to be part of the health system and collaborative rather than, you know, out on my own somewhere. But the thing we forgot or we played down was that acupuncture is energy medicine. And in my book, I started to look at how acupuncture points are different to other tissue. You can tell on MRI that they're a little bit different. They're more enervated and they have blood vessels that curl around them. And I looked at some research from the University of Vermont that looked at why acupuncture is specialized tissue. And what the researcher found, her name is Dr. Helen Langefeld, um, is that um, the acupuncture points have much more pull force. Well, actually not much more, 20% more pull force, which is interesting. So what that means is that when you put the needle in, the connective tissue winds around it like spaghetti on a fork and stretches. And it's harder to pull the needle out at the acupuncture points than it is in other parts of the body. And what that means is as the connective tissue winds, it becomes more electroconductive. Connective tissue is very electroconductive because it has a high collagen content. So it has a high water content. So I asked myself as I was writing this book, well, why would that be? Why would we have these special places that apparently only people in Asia knew about? And <laughs> why would why would they work? Um, and what? I- so wait, wait, chill, chill. Yeah. Just I just want to stop for one moment because some people actually doesn't know what acupuncture is, and I think just to decrease any kind of fear because when you say oh it gets pulled in i just don't want to raise more fear so let's back up and like you know i'll attest to it that it does not hurt right they're and- tiny needles they're like a little hair so you could tie them in a knot if you wanted to so it's not like getting a shot <laughs> exactly. 
So I went off and tried to explore what these acupuncture points are. And I believe the answer lies in embryology. It turns out that when you're an embryo, you don't have a very good communication system. You don't have a developed central nervous system or um, a a cardiovascular system, which is the ways that your body normally communicates with other parts of the body. Um, And so how embryos create themselves is electrically. And there are videos of animal embryos, particularly a frog embryo, embryo from Tufts University that's on YouTube that shows a frog embryo creating itself. And it's like lightning going across its face, which is really fun. And how the embryo does it, and this includes human embryos, is a bit like systems theory in computing. They create little nodes that bud off the next part of the body. And if you overlay a um, picture of the major acupuncture points on these embryological nodes, they are in the same place. So I think that the tissue that was used to create us is specifically electromagnetic to to bring off that phenomenon of the embryo growing itself. And it remains electroconductive um, once we're here and it can be used to regulate us. So fascinating. And you know what, in the days of COVID now, I think everybody can identify that we do have an electromagnetic field because if you, even if you go to the doctor's office, what do they do? They, they, um, check your temperature, right? So they don't touch your skin. So you get that the electromagnetic field and the thermodynamics in that will be detected through that thermometer reading without touching your skin directly. So I think we can all get at that now. And what you're saying is- You know, EKG, I'm sorry. Oh no, I was just gonna say, can it be measured? You know, energy medicine, you're saying that it can be measured even. Well, yes, uh, it can be measured. I started by looking at how um, what comes out of energy healers' hands, and there is um, there are, there are some very interesting studies, particularly on qigong masters who are very well trained energy workers, and they produce um, a, a frequency that comes out of their hands that is about um, a, a thousand times stronger than the usually strongest frequency in the body, which is the heart. And of course, we do measure the heart's frequency all the time in an EKG. We measure the brain's frequency all the time in an EEG. So we are measuring aspects of the human energy field and using it diagnostically in Western medicine. And what is interesting, though, about Qigong masters, and this is true of Reiki practitioners, too, who also have a sort of hands-on healing modality, is that the frequency they produce is very low. It's um, uh, about, I think it's 7.83 hertz. And that is the same frequency that hospitals use to um, heal soft tissue and bone. It's been found that, you know, if you break your leg, running electricity through the broken bone um, uh, speeds up healing. And they do that in all the best orthopedic hospitals these days. And that is the same frequency that healers are producing from their hands. So we know they're doing something. And then I looked at animal research because I wanted to take the placebo out of it. Not that I don't think the placebo is important, but I think it's important to isolate active ingredients when you're looking at things. And I, I met a man in New York called Dr. William Bengston. And Dr. Bengston is a professor at City University in New York. He is not, um, uh, he's pretty skeptical. He's kind of a scientist rather than a healer, yeah? Although he is a very good healer these days. And he learned a healing technique from a rather erratic psychic healer and decided rather improbably to test it in the lab. 
And what they did was they took mice that are specially bred to have cancer, poor mice, and then they gave them <laughs> breast cancer. I know. These mice have a happy yeah. end. Very intense. Yes. wincing. But they gave these mice breast cancer. And those mice always die on day 27. That's just how pharmaceuticals for that treat cancer are measured. You know, if you can extend the life of the mouse, then you have something that is worth more investigation. And what Dr. Bankston found was with this technique, which is a hands-on healing technique, um, the mice recovered. And then when they were re-injected with breast cancer, they couldn't get it, their immune systems had been changed. And Dr. Benson did what any scientist would do. He wondered if this was replicable, because obviously there's no point in having a special somewhere, one somewhere with a technique that nobody else can have access to. Uh, in science, we have to build on each other's discoveries. So he took a group of skeptical students and faculty members at City University, and he trained them in the technique, and every single one of them could do it. They, it wasn't, it didn't require special skill on the part of the healer, which I thought made it really interesting. And of course, the mice didn't know they were supposed to get better so uh, and they have done this experiment thousands on thousands of mice now not just on a few so it's not a one-off anomalous result it is and and they publish their work which is kind of amazing and i think dr bankston he actually now teaches this technique to other people is that correct he does he has a lovely book called the energy Cure, I think it's called. <laughs> I should know. Um, he's lovely and he teaches a course. He doesn't teach it very often. I went on it as research for this book and I took my researcher, Michael, who was a lawyer and very skeptical. You should always have a skeptical researcher, yeah? Um, you don't Absolutely. want them converted as your researcher. Um, and a lawyer is perfect because they go to the far end of everything trying to disprove <laughs> it. So I took Michael with me. And um, at one point, we put the energy into cotton, which is a whole story in, in and of itself that it can be stored. And um, <laughs> Michael strapped the cotton to his bad back overnight, not expecting anything to happen. And his back got better. And he was extremely grudging about admitting it. He was like, my back is kind of stupidly better. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I love that. It, and you articulated it so well in the book. And I just wanted that for those that are watching or listening, you know, if you haven't read it, totally pick up this book. Again, it's called Energy Medicine, The Science and Mystery of Healing. And I'm just going to plug you here because um, I haven't actually read the print book, but I've been listening. I've listened to the audio the first time when it came out. And then I just recently listened to it again because we were interviewing you. And oh, I have to say the second time listening to you is even better. And uh, by the way, it is you speaking to uh, narrating the book so I, I love that when the Wonderful. authors do that yeah mm -hmm. so check that out we'll have it in our show notes as well and I would love to speak to the placebo effect now because you were mentioning how he woke up in the morning and his back was better and we know that you know the placebo effect plays can play such a huge role and it's such an important role so tell us about what is what is the placebo effect and well, I had a whole chapter I had a whole chat on placebos in um, and a TED talk, TED. right? You did a TED I talk. I did many, many years mm -hmm. ago. I did a TED talk on placebos too. They've always interested me. I think if you work in healing, you ask yourself mm -hmm. how much of this is placebo and how does that work and why is that important and um, how can I add to the efficacy of what I'm doing by the way I hold myself with patients and things like that. So um, I looked at placebos closely and I've done that in the past. And one of the things 
things that I think people don't necessarily realize about placebos is it isn't just mind over matter and then you feel better. Placebos mm. change your body chemistry. So at the University of Turin, for example, they um, took Parkinson's patients who need dopamine. They gave them saline and they told them it was dopamine and they produced their own dopamine. Uh, so they changed their body, um, uh, their body chemistry with their mind. And that is very yeah. significant. So and the I placebo put it to effect me, being the power of the mind on your healing. It, 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 well, how I see it is that your mind mm -hmm. is part of your energy field. If your energy field mm -hmm. is everything in your body that isn't skin and tissue and bone, then your mind is part of that. So you can use your um, uh, one part of the energy field to affect another part. So if another part of the energy field is your body's ability to be self-heal, your body's intelligence, its ability to come back into homeostasis, then you can use part of the energy field, your beliefs and your feelings and your mind to influence the other part, which is your body's ability to respond and change, um, which is very intelligent. So to me, it doesn't seem like the placebo is the enemy. I sometimes like in the book to tease out what is and isn't placebo, because I think that's important. So I did lots of measuring of things. So for instance, I submitted my own body to science for this book, and they did an <laughs> EKG of my heart and an EEG of my brain. And when I'm with a patient, and I just trained myself to do this, I think over the years, I've, I've done my job a long time, my heart and my brain go at the same frequency. It's called uh, heart-brain coherence or internal coherence. And uh, to do that, I slow my brain down quite a lot. And then, and this is, I think, very cool, the patient's heart goes at the same frequency as mine. And when we're all doing that, the patient starts to feel very safe and um, comfortable and peaceful. And they think that's when information gets passed from one person to another. Yeah, so interesting. And I think I've read, um, I, you also mentioned about even in surgery, there is a certain um, possibility that the placebo effect plays a role. Can you speak to that? Well, yes, I, I interviewed a man. Um, I did a podcast for CBS for a year every week. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I have empathy for you doing yours. Um, and I interviewed a man called Dr. <laughs> Ian Harris. And Dr. Harris is a, um, a professor of orthopedic surgery at Northwestern University and an orthopedic surgeon. And he wrote a book called Surgery, the Placebo. Um, and um, oh, by Northwestern University, I mean in Australia, not not the one here. And <laughs> the world is small these days. He wrote a book about placebos. And what he said is that some of the most common orthopedic surgeries, when tested against sham surgeries, which is a relatively recent development, do not actually work any better than sham. And by sham surgeries, and when I interviewed him, I was quite shocked by this, actually, because I was amazed this was considered ethical. But um, <laughs> they actually did need surgeries, orthoscopic knee surgery. And some people had sham surgeries. They weren't told they signed a release to say they were willing to do it. And they opened them up and sewed them back up without doing the surgery. And those people did just as well as the people who had the actual knee surgery. The same was true for spinal fusion, which is another common surgery that actually doesn't work better than placebo. And on in my interview, I was fascinated by this. So I, I said, well, why do doctors do the surgeries then? And he 
he said, well, they're not crooks, Jill. They get confirmation bias. You know, they've been taught to do this surgery. They've been told it works and they do it and their patients get better. How are they supposed to know which bit is and isn't the placebo, which is true. Um, but it's, uh, it's interesting. And of course, if you were going to design the perfect placebo, it would be surgery. It's high stakes. It costs a lot of money. It's very technical. There are experts. Um, you put yourselves in the hands of the doctor. It's a, it, it is um, designed in some ways to invoke the placebo, which doesn't mean that all surgeries are successful because of the placebo effect, of course. No. But it right. does mean so that, we should, mm -hmm. and we should be um, taking that into account and encouraging it because anything you can do to encourage your body to heal is really important. And if you think about it, who does the healing when you're given surgery? It is actually you. You know, the doctor takes out your gallbladder or something, but who has to reaccommodate and um, uh, and work out how to um, transfer bile without gallbladder and that kind of thing? That's you. That's your body. So you're always self-healing, even if you get some help with pharmaceuticals or surgery. And that's the part that I think we're particularly good as acupuncturists and naturopaths at encouraging. Right. Absolutely. And even reaffirming the power of the positive word because if a surgeon is saying, you know, you're in good hands and this is going to go well, just having that in your head before the surgery. And then, of course, like you said, doesn't take away from the power of the actual surgery. There's many surgeries that are not just placebo effect, but it is fascinating that in those, those cases that knee surgery could be, you know, just placebo. So, but it just, what would you recommend for patients and people, viewers, listeners at home? What can they do? Like just something really simple that they can do to work on self-healing, you know, like energetically, like what, what would you recommend? Well, I do this all the time because I'm, I'm working with my patients virtually. And so I have to uh, prompt them from a distance to self-heal, which I can do. Having written this book, I learned a lot about how to direct their attention to prompt their energy fields to self-heal. Um, and the first thing is to ground yourself in your physical body and just really feel your physicality and, you know, your body on the earth. And then, and I do a, a sort of guided meditation with patients until they feel that. And then I get them to feel the separation or the difference between their body and their consciousness. That without awareness, um, our bodies would just be empty shells. But we have something in us that is as tiny as every cell that can orientate itself and communicate with the cells around us. But it's bigger than our mind. We can watch our mind have thoughts if we're still, if we meditate. And I put it to you, and this was an interesting part of the book for me, it, it's bigger than we are. It, there is a point at which we have a collective consciousness. And I started to look at studies from Princeton University that measured the effect of you know, uh, our collective consciousness and how we affect each other. Um, and so I get people to feel that and feel the resource of that. And when they understand the difference between the feeling of their physical body and their consciousness, we start to move it and bring a re uh, awareness to areas of, of trouble. And um, to be honest, when I started doing this, that was all I did. But as I leaned into our collective consciousness, I began to realize I could feel what was going on with them at that level. Mm -hmm. 
which was, I don't, I'm British and I already think being an acupuncturist is a bit weird. So I've really not wanted to be weird my whole career. (laughs) And here I am. Now I can feel, but I can. And I can pick things up and the patients verify it. Um, And so we, my patients and I are working online at using their mind and their ability to move their consciousness through their body in a way that prompts self-healing. And so then can they, so you're helping also them direct it on their own. So, you know, versus just um, having a virtual consult with you, they're learning to do some of this on their own. That's I thought that was yeah. very important, Mary. And when, when I looked, uh, I looked at charlatans in the book, you can't look at the subject without thinking about charlatans. Absolutely. And I thought that I was going to see people who were just complete con artists. Um, and we're taking lots of money and waving their hands about and doing absolutely nothing that was measurably <laughs> effective. I didn't see too many of those, actually. I saw another subset of people that worried me, and there were quite a lot of them. And these were people who had talent, but then were using it in ways that were interpersonally exploitative and damaging to other people. And I actually saw rather a lot of these people. If you've seen the Bikram documentary on Netflix, he is clearly Mm. a man who was a talented yoga teacher and then used it to have power over young women and then coerce them into sex. Um, And Mm. I was so concerned about this that I consulted the head of psychiatry and law at Harvard, a man called Dr. Thomas Guttheil, who is um, one of the world's most recognized experts on transgressions of the um, therapeutic relationship. And he gave me some red flags to look out for. And one of them was look out for people who are a cult of one. And so people who are advertising that they're special in some way, um, I mean, maybe they are, in which case let's give them the benefit of the doubt. But for the most part, I think good healers teach their patients how to self-heal and have the power back. And I actually wrote exercises all the way through the book on how to harness your own healing energy, because I thought that was the best way to stop people falling into the hands of exploitative people who would then um, use power over them. Dr. Goodhill also warned me against people who say, only I can fix you. That I don't think is ever true. That I mean, certainly I never feel like that about my patients. I'm aware there are lots of different ways of getting somewhere. Um, uh, and I'm, I, I, I'm an effective acupuncturist. I'm an effective energy worker. I'm not remotely special. And I'm really clear about that. I have 28 like me back at the Unova Center in New York City, which is the practice I work at. Um, uh, most acupuncturists can do this. Uh, um, Reiki practitioners can do it. This is almost like your birthright. And, and in right. fact... We're able to communicate with each other um, over distances in really interesting ways. At the University of Connecticut, they put two people in separate MRIs. And when one uh, thought nice thoughts, kind thoughts, healing thoughts about the other, their brainwaves synced up, which is the Mm. very feeling we have all had when we think of someone and then they text us. Yeah. This happens all the time, more than Mm -hmm. could possibly be statistically, you know, coincidental, I think. Right. I mean, we're always connected. I mean, people can identify with, you know, some, if in the days when we had social gatherings and when a person comes into the room that perhaps is a little angry, you know, you, know, you can get pulled into their emotional state, right? Or like well, however someone else feels, you can certainly feel it. So yes, that's especially it. when you tap into it. I think I think I love that you speak to 
working on your own energy to then be able to tap into the collective consciousness. And that's even the premise of our podcast, Embrace You First, because we're trying to encourage people to do self-healing so that they can then do it for a better good. And it's not a selfish behavior to take care of yourself. It's like a selfless thing to take care of you. And, and then just giving people that ability to heal on their own and not take away. It's almost like some people, I guess, like you're saying, the charlatans would almost take up away the power by saying only they can heal. But oh, yes. what you're saying is, by the way, you are special and we are all special, but you're definitely extra. Um, so uh, I think that it's important that we, and, and just the fact that you do give that power back and explain to patients, you can heal yourself. And mm -hmm. of course there is an element of that practitioner patient relationship that does add to the healing, but you know, people need to know that, that they can do it. So then I want to add in a little question. So, you know, we're talking about belief systems and how it can impact our energy. Now there's people that will be in the place of, oh gosh, I can't heal myself. I don't have the confidence. And, you know, what do we do with that? And how do you speak to this person? Well, not everything can be healed. You are not a failure if you're sick. I spend a lot of time with patients going through that. The first thing is self-blame. When people um, are struggling with a health issue, they often just blame themselves. Uh, Mary and I both treat a lot of infertility patients. Yep. And so we can tell you that infertility patients just blame themselves. And we have yeah. to tell them, oh, no, no, people who live on beer and cheetahs get pregnant. No, <laughs> it's not your fault. Yes. It's, yes. it's just somewhat random and part of your journey. And we will all die, which is something we don't like to think about um, <laughs> very much. But I, I started my career in a hospice. And so I spent a lot of time supporting people at the end of life. Um, and the conviction I came out of that job with is that dying isn't a failure. It is a natural mm -hmm. transition and you haven't yes. failed. And people would be dying feeling like they'd failed, uh, which is an awful sort of uh, way we've set this up. So, um, you know, you, you can't necessarily always heal everything, but you can prompt your body, you can give your body the best chance. And you can prompt your body's self-healing ability, no matter how serious your disorder. Now, you may not um, want to just rely on that. You know, if you have um, cancer, um, you you will need an oncologist and you should listen to people Absolutely. who have you know studied and have experience and understand the latest research and you should get the best team you can get around you. I always encourage my cancer patients to get a team, but I also yes. encourage them to know that they're the team leader. This is your team. I'm part of your team. Your oncologist is part of your team. Your surgeon is part of your team, but you are in charge of your body. And I um, have a story in the book that I think really ex uh, is a great example of collaborative healing where energy healing played a significant role. And I tell it towards the end of the book. Um, it's about a young man called Madhu Anziani. And Madhu was a student in San Francisco and he fell out of his dorm room window and broke his neck. And he was told that he would be tetraplegic for the rest of his life, which for a young man of 23 was devastating. And he was in hospital. He was in a coma for a long time. When he came round, he, um, uh, you know, he was given his prognosis. He had a lot of support and he had a really good hospital. It was at UCSF where they have a very good neurology department. And so he had great nursing and great occupational therapy. But, but he was, you know, um, supposed to accept his diagnosis. And he said to me, Jill, 
I, I wasn't stupid. I knew I would probably be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life, but I didn't let that belief um, uh, in too much. And I tried to live in joy, which is extraordinary presence of mind for someone of only 23. And he lay mm. in his bed and he started to make sounds. And he had the common sense to realize as he felt these vibrations through his body from the sounds that he must have some nervous system that uh, left. And in fact, that was true. His spine was only 99% severed. So he had a tiny bit. Mm. One. <laughs> Um, and he could feel the vibration. So he got really into singing in tones and he intoned mantras and um, someone brought him a Tibetan prayer wheel and his dad would lift him up and move his hands so that he could move it and uh, and say the mantras and things like that. And at one point, a nurse said to Madhu, you need to stop this and work on how to be the best tetraplegic you can be rather than thinking you're going to walk out of here. And I think she was being well-meaning. Yeah, uh, and, you know, she was trying to move him to the next he thought is the next mm -hmm. stage in his healing mm -hmm. and he told her no i'm going to walk out of here and three months later he did and mm -hmm. um it, the vibration that he created down his spinal cord um created a movement it was a frequency sound is just a frequency and um it it it, it prompted the body's self-healing enough that his spinal cord started to repair and what i like about that story mary and tanya is he didn't do it on his own it's not a story of sort of miraculous resurrection or you know he had great doctors he had really good care but there is no doubt that his belief that he could do it, combined with his wish to live in joy in the most difficult circumstances, combined with sending a vibration down his spine that caused communication in an area that was no longer communicating, prompted his body to self-heal. And he told me that a year later, he was able to walk pretty normally. He, he got on a plane on his own to go and see his family in um, New York from, from California. And he now works as a sound healer. You can look him up online, Madhu Anziani, as you would if sound had healed you in such a profound Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Oh, yes. Yeah. So we'll have all of this in our show notes. And I love this story. And I think this is a great story to end off with. But before we end the actual interview, our most important question of the day is what fills your cup as you, well, you know, spend time healing others? <laughs> well, I have my cup. <laughs> I have my cup with me. To be honest, and this is absolutely true, I um, get very replenished by the work I'm doing with patients at the moment. I met healers who found it very draining. Um, and often they were people with um, sort of weak boundaries energetically. Um, I've done this for 25 years. I don't find my job draining. I find it really interesting. And actually with most of my patients, I do a guided meditation and it's very peaceful. And I am in upstate oh, yes. New York. You can probably mm -hmm. see the trees behind me. I look out over the beautiful fall trees at the moment. I have my nice cup of tea and I just go back to back for a few hours and see patient after patient. And honestly, when I'm done, I'm um, my heart sings. Human beings are extraordinary. Their stories so, are really interesting. Everybody has a unique story and getting to know them and getting to understand how to prompt them to self-heal is um, extraordinary detective work. And um, I, I enjoy watching them get better. 
I enjoy persuading them that that's them, not me. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, well, and, and you're connecting. That comes from that. So I like my job. Mm-hmm. I it, My job fills my cup, Lucky, luckily enough. So beautiful. Thank you. Love that. Thank you so much. And we will have to have to have her back again. Yes. Spread words of wisdom. And again, uh, look, look at our show notes. We'll have the links to the book and either audio, video, all, all of her it. references. And please like and subscribe and share and comment below. Thank you so much for viewing. And thank you so much, Jill, for coming on and being interviewed by us. You were amazing. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Click subscribe, like, and share. Please comment and suggest topics you want us to cover. Until next time, ask yourself, how are you going to embrace you first today? For more podcasts, check out embraceyoufirst.com. And follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.